invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, where we'll take our study this morning. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession. Lord, we ask that your Spirit would not only teach us this morning, but would change us in our hearts. That You would not only affect our understanding, but alter our behavior. I pray, Holy Spirit, that You will do in us what needs to be done. Not just collectively as as a group of people, but individually. It's a marvel, Father, that You know every heart. You know every need, you know every sin, you know every struggle of every one of us in the room this morning. And we ask that you would, we invite you to come in and clean house, Lord. And bring us to a new understanding that is altering to our behavior and our lives and what we do and how we live. As we prayed over communion, so I pray over the teaching, Lord, that we would not go through the motions that this would not be yet another Bible study. But Father, that You, by the power of Your Spirit, would make the changes that are so necessary in our lives and our behavior. Some Father this morning may not know Jesus as Lord. And I pray today would be the day. Some know Jesus as Lord, but have not been walking with Him. I pray that there would be a correction of steps. For Father, we all need Your grace and we all need Your compassion and we all need the forgiveness that can only come through the confession of Jesus Christ as Lord. So bring Your Word to bear on us today, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dreams are weird. You can go through the Bible and clearly there are times where the Lord speaks through dreams or, or gives dreams for a particular reason. Read, read through Genesis. You know, you'll see it many times. Read through the book of Daniel and how Daniel gets dreams and how even Nebuchadnezzar, the pagan king, gets dreams that need interpretation. So there's, there's that. Joel talks about in the last days that our, that our old men will dream dreams. So if you're dreaming a lot... Acts 2.17 talks about that. So we know that, that God can use dreams as He can use many different methods to communicate, to speak, to imply to us what His will is, His desire. But what about random dreams? Like, like my daughter Naomi's dream last week. 
she came to me and she said, Dad, I had a nightmare, but it turned into just a weird dream. Nightmare at first, weird dream at the end. I said, well, what was it? She said, well, I started, my dream began with terrorists. And I thought, how sad that my 12-year-old daughter had a dream having to do with terrorists. But she said, but then the terrorists turned into unicorns. And I thought, okay, well, then that's all right. (laughs) Terrorists, unicorns. I thought it was so funny. And then, like two nights later, I had a dream. My family was in Leavenworth. I didn't even tell you this, Cheryl. We were all in Leavenworth. It was Christmas time. There was snow everywhere. And we walked into this like little yard in front of a hotel covered in snow. And there in the snow was a frozen alligator. <laughs> no, I kid you not. And it woke up. And it crawled out of the ice and began jumped up on its back feet and started snapping at everybody. And we're dancing around trying to kick this out. I'm trying to get it back into the ice. I mean... What is that? Alligators in the snow, terrorists and unicorns. What is it with our dreams? Now, I have a theory. And my theory, you know, aside from the use of dreams by God, which is legitimate and biblical and He can do and has done. But my theory is this, that random dreaming is kind of like a cerebral storage dump. It's like the trash folder on your computer. You know, every now and then you've got to clean that stuff out. And throughout the day, whether it's you hear something on the news or something someone says or goes by and you're not aware of it and it comes in and out of the brain and stuff, stuff gets stuck in there. And I think all those bizarre, useless, unnecessary thoughts that wander into the mind get dumped in our dreams. And so it doesn't make sense. And they're bizarre and they're weird. And I'm telling you this for a reason. For 2,000 years of the church, people have thought of confession that way. Confession is, well, the old Scottish proverb that declares, open confession is good for the soul. Open confession, it's good for the soul. It's good to get things off your chest, to share what's on your mind, to get it out there, to get clear of all that guilt and all that shame. Just confess it, man, because it's like computer garbage that, that, that you know clogs up the machine. So you need to hit delete, you need to clear it out. Listen, this is so important to understand. True confession is much, much more than clearing our mental hard drive or cleaning the cache of the conscience. True confession. Jesus put it this way. Matthew chapter 10, verse 27. He said, What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. I love that. We really ought to have church on the roof someday just for fun. But then he says this, Matthew 10.32, Everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. He says, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus didn't there say, whoever confesses his sin, it's all good. Whoever dumps that, that stuff, that shame, that guilt, then you're fine. Just dump it and move on. I think that's the problem with that perspective of confession. If we think that confession is just a dump, guess what? We're going to be back in the confessional a week later. And some of us keep going back again and again, confessing, doing the same thing, confessing, doing the same thing, because it's not just your sin that you're called to confess. If you follow Jesus, it is Jesus you confess. 
He is our confession. In fact, Paul says in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's unequivocal. It's one of my favorite verses in all the Bible because it's so absolute. Confess Jesus. Believe God raised Him. Saved. Done. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. More than sin, it is confessing Christ. 1 John 4.15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. So it's kind of a paradigm shift, a bit, that confession is not just relief, it is life. Both now and forever. This really caught me off guard, spun me around this week. We come to the end of this first letter to Timothy. And Paul charges young Pastor Tim with five imperative verbs. And I was going to talk about those this morning. I was real excited to talk about those. In fact, I had most of my notes done to talk about those today. But God said late Thursday afternoon, no, you need to save that because you need to focus on something else. But i got to at least tell you what those verbs are. In verses 11 and 12, you might note the word flee. And then pursue. And in verse 12, fight and take hold. And finally, down in verse 20, the word guard. These are five commands, powerful commands, that are designed to engender perseverance, For young Timothy, I love him. Man, flee sin, pursue righteousness, fight the good fight, take hold of eternal life, and guard what's been entrusted to you. That's grit, man. That's perseverance. That's stick-to-itiveness. And Paul calling Timothy here, man of God, says, do this. But in the middle of all of it, he appeals to Timothy's good confession. Listen again, flee from these things, verse 11, you man of God, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now that word confession, the Greek is homologia, and it actually doesn't just mean to speak. In fact, confession is translated profession, Or acknowledgement. So, yeah, it's what you acknowledge. But get this, it's also what you profess. It is your profession. It can be what you say, or it can be what you do. Your profession is both. By profession, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I profess to you this morning, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Savior. I believe. I I confess that before you. I profess Jesus as Lord. That's my profession this morning. But, by profession, I'm also a pastor. That's what I do. So my profession of Jesus, wow, that goes to who I am, but my profession as a pastor, it's what I do. And so confession is both what you say and what you do. How you speak and how you live. And you can't just speak one way and live another way or you have not made a confession of Jesus. Your lifestyle has got to match, has got to line up with what you claim from your lips. And I find it fascinating that Paul goes to this right here with Timothy, appealing to Timothy's confession. He says, you made the good confession. Well, when did he do that? 
And what is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about when Timothy as a young man first believed in Jesus? I confess Jesus is Lord. Was it perhaps at Timothy's baptism when he made the good confession in front of many witnesses? Was it at his ordination when he was called to ministry? And Paul says, we laid hands on you. Paul mentions that three different times in the letters to Timothy. Think about that. When the hands were laid on you, is that the time of Timothy's good confession? Honestly, only Timothy and Paul know. And those who were gathered around note that, that he says you you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And that's part of the deal. You know, all personality types aside, whether you're extroverted or introverted or overexerted, whatever it might be, if you can't confess Jesus is the Christ openly and in the front of many witnesses, how can you say you know Him? It's why baptism is a public thing. It's why giving your life to Jesus, becoming a Christian, is not something you do off in your closet all by yourself. Oh, you may start there, but it's got to be professed if it's going to be real. It's got to be shared. Do people in your life know that you belong to Jesus? Do, you, do they know this is your profession, both spoken and acted? Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity but a spirit of power and love and discipline. And it doesn't matter if you're outgoing or shy. If you come to Jesus, you do not have a spirit of timidity. The Holy Spirit is not timid. Does not shy away from speaking truth and from being who He is. And so if the Spirit is in you, if Christ abides in you, you must openly confess that you belong to Him. It's not something we hide. But listen, the charge to Timothy goes on in verse 13. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, this section is so full it's going to take more time to unpack. We'll get into it on Wednesday. But... God caught my attention with this good confession this week. He uses the phrase twice. Exact same phrase. You made the good confession. And Jesus testified the good confession before Pilate. Timothy made it. So did Jesus. And so I wonder. I was reading that. Well, what was it? What was the good confession that Jesus made? Because that should give us some information about Timothy and and ourselves. So I'd like to spend the rest of the time this morning talking about that. That is the good confession of Jesus. Turn in your Bibles back to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We're just going to kind of walk through the story here. This is the night of the betrayal of Jesus who made that good confession before Pontius Pilate. Let's look at that and think about it. See if we can figure out what that good confession exactly was And at the same time, see what was going on here. John chapter 18, we'll pick up the story in verse 28, although three trials have already taken place. Three unjust, unlawful trials 
where Jesus had been mistreated and brutalized already, now they bring him, the Jewish leaders, they bring him before Pilate. And in verse 28 it says, They led Jesus from Caiaphas into the the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium, so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them. Do you see the sick hypocrisy here? Of the Sanhedrin of those Jewish leaders, of what, of what they did. They bring Jesus after horrible treatment. And they bring him to the praetorium where those Gentile Roman guards were and they would not go in. Why? Because they wanted to have Passover with their families. Because they didn't want to become suddenly ceremonially, ceremonially defiled. And they had already committed these three unlawful trials themselves. They had already brutalized Jesus. In the darkness of the night and the soul, Jesus was sneered at and slapped in the face all before they even get to Pilate. Matthew chapter 26 verse 63 says, While they sneered and slapped, Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, You said it. Nevertheless, I tell you hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a great confession. Guess what's coming? Watch out. You're going to see this. You're going to experience this. A great confession. But it wasn't before Pilate, so it can't be the good confession that Paul was talking about. Not the one Paul spoke of. But Matthew 26.65 says, The high priest tore his robes and said, He's blasphemed! What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. They spat in his face. They beat him with their fists. And others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? And that was all in the first three trials. And now coming before Pilate, coming to the praetorium, they did not enter so as not to be defiled, but they were already completely defiled. They had already violated even Jewish law. But the reality is with these guys, it was all external religion. It was all false Pharisaic religion. It was external piety. It was all about the optics. So now they're before Pilate. And in John 18.29, picking it up, therefore Pilate went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. It's a non-answer. They never do tell. They drum up some stuff, but they didn't have an answer for his question, so they dodge it. And in verse 31, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves. Judge him according to your law. (laughs) But the Jews said to him, Well, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. They'd had that right stripped from them, remember? They, They couldn't put anyone to death. They could call for the death sentence. But then they had to hand it over to Rome to get permission for the death sentence to be carried out. And so Pilate is totally playing with them here. He knows this. He knows they can't do anything. He's toying with them and messing with them. But note what John says. That after the Jews said to him, we're not permitted to put anyone to death, they said this, John says, to fulfill the word of Jesus which he spoke, signifying what kind of death he was about to die. 
That is absolutely marvelous. What John deftly points out is it wasn't Pilate and it wasn't the Jews who handed down the death sentence. It was Jesus. That He sentenced Himself. Could you do that? Can you imagine standing trial for some crime committed? And the judge looks at you and looks at the prosecuting attorney and says to the prosecutor, you judge him. And the prosecutor says, we don't have the right to. You have to. And then you stand up and say, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll give my own sentence. Let's make it death. Jesus set His own sentence. Throughout the Gospel of John, it's absolutely clear who was in charge of this whole procedure. It was Jesus. John chapter 3, verse 13, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. It's got to be this way. Jesus said in John twelve thirty two, And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to Myself. And by this He was saying, He said this to indicate the kind of death by which He was to die. He set the sentence, not Pilate. Not the Romans, not the Jews. Jesus did it. That's remarkable. By the way, it goes to His love for you. It goes to His heart and His compassion to you and to me that He chose this. He determined it. Pilate didn't. Pilate could have. Pilate was known in the region as a cruel leader. A cruel governor. Luke chapter 13 verse 1 tells us that at one point, Pilate literally mixed the blood of some Galileans in with their sacrifices. Killed them, mixed it in, and then offered that up in sacrifice to defile the whole thing. This guy was cruel. He was also political. He was shrewd. And he was patently proud. And you can go through the Gospels and read all the scenes where Pilate is present and you'll see all of that in his character, in his nature. One of the things, his proudness, skip ahead in John 19 uh, to John 19 verse 10 and note this. A little later on, that, that day or that morning, so Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me. Do you not know I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. Don't you know who you're talking to? You don't talk to me? Don't you know who I am, pompous clown? He stands there in front of Jesus and and he's acting like this, this great, powerful judge looking down on this wimpy Galilean rabbi. Don't you know who I am? And he didn't realize he was addressing I am. As a matter of fact, I think the pompous clown was really a tragic clown. Because the irony here is that this judge of Jesus will one day himself stand before the same Jesus who he judged to be judged by Him. Can you imagine being Pilate in that day? What it will be like to stand before the Jesus who you could have released. The Jesus who stood there at the pavement of the praetorium as you washed your hands and feet like a wimp and handed down sentence of crucifixion because that's what the Jews were demanding. Can you imagine being Pilate and standing before Jesus in judgment? For He will. That day is coming. Why, with the kind of person that Pilate was, does the Bible talk about him at all? 
Why give him the time of day? You know, there, there was a time in our country when people would commit horrendous things and we said, don't name them. Don't give them the satisfaction of being in the media. Well, those days are gone, you know. Stephen uh, Paddock, is it? This murderer in Las Vegas, his name is all over the place. Everybody hears his name, knows his name. Why do we name Pilate and even give him that place in history? Why, why does the Apostles' Creed do it? Those of you who, who grew up in maybe a more liturgical church and, and spoke the, the Apostles' Creed that says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And perhaps you were in one of those churches and week in and week out you spoke the creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate and Pilate keeps getting this credit. Why? Why mention this man? Because it's history. Because it happened. And because the Bible is buttressed, if you will, supported by both internal and external support all over the place. I mentioned to you recently, my son Hayden was dealing with some Facebook challenges of some people who are saying the Bible is, is illegitimate, and it's disproved, and it's got all these flaws and problems. And I say, au contraire, the extra-biblical uh, evidence and testimony of history and archaeology is profound where the Scriptures are concerned. And archaeology and history confirm this man, Pilate. Now, it took a while for archaeology. We didn't have any archaeological evidence that Pilate was the procurator of Judea until 1961. And in 1961, at an excavation in the Roman amphitheater in Caesarea Maritima, that's in Israel, the Italian archaeologist Dr. Antonio Frovo unearthed a limestone block. And on it, it read in Latin inscription, Pontius Pilatus Prefectus Judea. You can see a mock-up of this limestone in Israel, there in Caesarea, where Pilate was named in archaeology. Proof, but not until 1961. Up until then, there were even Bible scholars who said, well, Pilate may have been made up. No, he was not. Now, historically, we already knew this, that he was the governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to A.D. 36, because three different independent historians confirmed it. Tacitus, Josephus, and Philo, all from the first century time frame, who spoke of this man Pilate, and they talked about him as procurator, governor of Judea at that time. The historicity of the Bible is important to understand. These things happened. Pilate was a real man, a real governor, a real Roman. Just as Jesus was really here, really walked the earth, really went through all that he went through, and really suffered under Pontius Pilate, where the good confession would take place. So let's keep looking for it. Verse 33. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Now, that sentence is not exactly translated. Are you the king of the Jews? It's interesting they don't translate it right. It leads with the personal pronoun. So if you were reading it in the Greek, you wouldn't hear, are you the king of the Jews? You would read, you are the king of the Jews. But I don't think so much as a statement, it's still a question. As though Pilate's looking at Jesus and he's going, you are the king of the Jews? You? The word is su in the Greek? Su leges? Su, you are the king of the Jews? 
read it that way, it comes off much more cynical and disdainful. The powerful pilot disdaining this rabbi. Trying to figure him out. I mean, hey, if you were Pilate, wouldn't you expect this Jewish rebel to at least kind of be obstinate or stubborn? Pilate had dealt with zealots before. Hey, Barabbas was a zealot. Pilate had dealt with these guys and no doubt had seen many of them who stood before him like this, you know. Go ahead, call down your sentence. We Jews will never bow to Rome. Jesus was just not like that. In fact, I submit to you that Jesus was unlike anybody Pilate had ever seen on the pavement before. Nobody like Jesus. You are king of the Jews. Verse 34. Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did others tell you about me? Brilliant. Beautiful. I love the way Jesus works. And the answer He gives, it's perfect. You know, Jesus knew exactly who and what He was dealing with in Pilate. He knew about this man, but now, even though Pilate is cruel and brutal and mean and political and all those other things, Jesus, I believe, is asking Pilate for Pilate's sake. But in that moment... Are you saying this on your own initiative? Or did you just hear this from someone else? You are the king of the Jews? Are you saying this? Almost as if Jesus is giving Pilate a chance, a last minute opportunity to say, what do I think about this? Who is this man standing before me? Jesus says, are are, are you saying this? Jesus always leads the questioner back to the right question. Who do you say that I am? What do you think about me? What do you say? You may have heard this somewhere else. What do you say about me? But Pilate, with a heart as hard as limestone, turns around and says, I'm not a Jew, am I? Or literally, am I a Jew? You're asking me? Am I a Jew? He says, your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. And then he says, and I believe we see the exasperation growing here, what have you done? What have you done? Pilate's trying to piece this together. I would be doing the same thing. It doesn't make any sense. He's heard from the Jews. He sees their anger and their vitriol. He sees how upset these Jewish leaders are and he's looking at this... Galilean? What's going on here? What have you done that could possibly upset them? He's heard from his soldiers about how Jesus has interacted with them, how he's taken the beatings and hasn't stood up to them or fought back. He's heard from his own wife. And she she sent him a text message a little earlier. (laughs) Matthew 27, 19. It comes on and it says, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Pilate's wife had dreamed about Jesus and was like, Honey, back off. Don't deal with Him. By the way, tradition tells us, we don't know that it's absolutely true, can't verify it, but that Pilate's wife became a Christian. But Pilate committed suicide. Pilate's wife, don't have anything to do with him. The soldiers, the Jews, everyone around him, and Pilate's now talking to Jesus and going, What did you do? It's just strained and 
suddenly Pompous Pilate is in a pickle. What did you do? What have you done? Verse 36. And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. He is reading this politician like a book. I know what you're worried about, Pilate. I know what they're claiming. They're saying I'm here to overthrow Rome, which is dumb. Because it has nothing to do with Rome. But in essence, what he's saying is my kingdom is oh so much bigger than this. Literally, Jesus says my kingdom is not from here. His rule, His authority, His his power, so much greater than Roman columns and coliseums that would crumble with age and, and history. No, His kingdom, and Christians get this, the kingdom of Christ Jesus is not political. It is not territorial. It is first and foremost a kingdom of the heart. Now, it is a real kingdom coming. Understand, the Bible is clear. There will be a rule and reign by Jesus in person from Jerusalem for a thousand years, Revelation 20 declares. And all of the old prophecies to David and to the Jewish people, I will set one on your throne and he will be king forever. A child is born to us, a son is given to us. He will rule and reign. So all of those promises, they will be literally fulfilled on this earth in person by Jesus. But understand, even then, the kingdom of God is not a kingdom that can be seen as that of man. It is not political. It is not territorial. It is heart level. And it is spiritual, which is marvelous to me, because you just can't stop it. And it has nothing to do with partisan politics, It is not governed by national pride. You realize that simply being an American does not make you a Christian. And that Christianity and and American citizenship are not synonymous. That we have brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus in North Korea, in Iran, in Syria... All over the world, the kingdom continues to grow. I was talking with Stephen Sweeney this morning, Stephen and Julie, who are involved with with JAR's ministry through Wycliffe. And he was just at some training and saying, I'm just blown away. I, I had no idea how huge this is. And how much is going on in the name of Christ in the world. And you know what? Sometimes we show up in a place like this on a Sunday morning. And we look around and we hear all the garbage happening in the world out there and it's all in our heads and we haven't yet hit delete and we're all right here and we kind of go boy is this it i mean when i think about the population of christians in anacortes and oak harbor maybe down in coopville is this it and it can be really discouraging feeling like there's not a whole lot going on. If, if this is all we've got, and I'm so glad you're here, and this is wonderful, but really if this is the kingdom, we in trouble. But this is not the kingdom. This is only part of the kingdom. This is one tiny little fellowship in the midst of a vast and growing kingdom that continues to spread throughout the planet because His kingdom is not of this realm. It's bigger by far, and it is growing And we are ruled first and foremost in the kingdom of the heart by the king of the heart, the abiding presence of Jesus Christ himself. 
So what he's saying to Pilate is stunning, it's awesome, kind of lets Pilate off the hook, it lets the wind out of his sails, you know. Oh, so this isn't really a political zealot campaign here. No, it's not. Jesus is at the same time saying, Pilate, I'm no threat to you. And he's saying, but my kingdom cannot be stopped and will far outlast any vestiges of the great Roman Empire. My kingdom. Therefore Pilate said to him, verse 37, So you are a king! (laughs) Gotcha! So, you are a king. Marvelous, it's the second time now Pilate has said this. First time, you are a king? And this time, so you are a king! Listen to Jesus' response and don't miss this. Jesus says, You say correctly that I am a king, or literally, you said it. You said it, that I am a king. And then he says, for this I have been born. For this I have been born. A clear statement of the flesh and blood humanity of Jesus. For this I was born into the world. I was born a baby. I was born a human being. For this reason I've come into the world. I I was born, he says, his humanity. Isaiah 7.14, Matthew 1.23 says, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. But John 1.14 declares the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I was born for this reason. God became a baby for this reason. Jesus declares His humanity for this reason. What reason? Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For this I was born. But listen to what else He said. Then Jesus says... And for this I have come into the world, which speaks of His divinity. I was born flesh and blood, and I came into the world. Now see, I don't say it that way. I I don't know if you do. I had a birthday last month, September 21st. And on that day, we did not celebrate the day that I came into the world. This is the day that I have graced planet Earth with my divine presence. And so we celebrate with cake and candles the day that I came into the world. I was born. I was born, man. A human being. Jesus was just born. For this reason I was born. Humanity. For this reason I have come into the world. Divinity. God who came in among us. And 1 Timothy 3.16 says again, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. And he says, I have come into the world to testify to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Truth is not an abstract philosophy. Truth is an absolute person, the person of Jesus Christ. If you are of truth, then you know Jesus because He is truth. Absolutely. And then Pilate ends this thing, he says in verse 38, what is truth? 
What is truth? I wish we could hear the inflection of his voice. Because that would tell us what he's really saying here. What is truth? Is it the question some have asked? Entire sermons have been preached on what is truth? Pilate saying this, and some have said he was a seeker. You know, he was a determined seeker. He was saying, what is truth? What is truth? Standing there before Jesus, realizing something about this man, saying, what is truth? Help me here. I don't think that was it at all. No, not a determined searcher, but a dismissive cynic. What is truth? Pilate was a politician. Truth is however you legislate it, if you're a politician. But we know that truth is Jesus. And truth stood there face to face with Pilate, eye to eye. Pilate was looking into the very face of truth and did not see him. What is truth? Jesus says, I am. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And when he had said this, what is truth? Pilate went out again to the Jews and he said to them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I release someone for you at the Passover. Do you wish then that I release for you the king of the Jews? So they cried out again saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. So what was the good confession? What exactly was the good confession that Jesus made in front of Pontius Pilate? You need to wait for it just a little longer. Because at this point, Luke tells us that Pilate sends Jesus across the city back up to Upper Jerusalem to Herod's palace where he would confront that stupid king. And Herod, unlike Pilate, was absolutely tickled pink at the idea that Jesus was coming to see him. Listen to this. Just listen. It's Luke 23 in verse 4, which says, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they kept on insisting, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching all over Judea, starting from Galilee as far as this place. Oh, when Pilate heard that, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod who himself was also in Jerusalem at that time. Pilate's like, yes, he's Galilean. That's not my jurisdiction. Off the hook, I don't have to deal with this. Send him off to Herod. And so off Jesus goes. And watch what happens. Just listen. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time, because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him And he questioned him at some length. But he answered him, nothing. Literally, he questioned him with many words. He peppered him with questions. Trying to get something out of Jesus. Some action, some behavior, or some word from Jesus. Because he had heard all about Jesus. And he didn't get a single confession. Not a word. Jesus didn't utter a word. Now, I would have. You windbag. You fool. This is the Herod who chopped off the head of Jesus' cousin John the Baptist. How dare you ask me questions when what you did to John... I I call heaven and earth against you today. 
Father, break his teeth. You know, I mean, I would be tear his arms off. I would be coming up with all kinds of things. Jesus doesn't utter a single word. Why? Because he knew his heart. John Corson once made the comment that the whole reason that Jesus did not utter a word was because John the Baptist, his, Herod had cut off the head of John the Baptist, God's messenger. And when he did that, God said, you will not hear from me again. Interesting thought. Jesus doesn't utter a word, doesn't say a thing. He knows Herod's heart. Herod the Tetrarch, Herod who was part Jewish, very curious about Jewish things, but his heart was as cauterized as it gets. Listen, before he had John the Baptist beheaded, you know what, it says this about Herod. Mark records this. Mark chapter 6, verse 20. Herod was afraid of John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, so he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. Hmm. Hearing with no confession. Listening with no response. And I wonder how many people in this sanctuary this morning will listen with no response. Or we'll hear because it's interesting. That's fascinating. I kind of like the history. I, I like the stuff we pull out. That's, that's, that's cool. But walking out the door, the heart has already been seared and there is no change. That's Herod. Luke 23 verse 10 tells us the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing Jesus vehemently and Herod with his soldiers after treating him with contempt and mocking him dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day for before they had been enemies with one another. Well, now they had a common playfulness. Pilate got the joke when Jesus brutalized by the Jews by Pilate's soldiers, and now by Herod and his men, comes beat up and broken and bruised and bloodied, wearing a gorgeous robe. Pilate got a good laugh out of that one, I'm sure. I'll tell you what, I hope it's not you this morning. But there are those who declare, I've got a list of questions for God. I've got many questions for God and one day when I'm good and ready, I'm going to ask Him my questions and He better be ready to answer me. Listen, like Herod, these people think they will question Him at length. On the day that you think you're going to ask God many questions, you will not get an answer. Psalm 95 verse 7 says, He is our God. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you would hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. The Hebrew writer picks up on that in Hebrews 3 and Hebrews 4. Do not harden your heart if you hear His Word. If you hear what is spoken, today is the day, not next week, not next year, and not when God finally answers your questions. Well, you better answer my questions. Who are you? That you would ask God? And the day you ask, you will get nothing. 1 Timothy chapter 4, 
verse 1 and 2. We studied this. The Spirit explicitly says in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. How in the world is the king who is king of the kingdom of our hearts going to be heard when the heart itself is cauterized and seared and hardened against God? What I'm saying is this. What Herod missed and Pilate missed, Jesus has made the good confession. Jesus has already said everything to you and everything to me that He needs to say. It's all been spoken. He has given every answer that you need, that I need. He has spoken the great confession. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13, Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. He already made the good confession. So what was it? What was it exactly that he said? I was so excited when I saw that. The good confession. There's something here. You know, rabbit trail, and off I went. And I'm reading John 18, and I'm trying to think through, what what is the confession? There are so many things that it could be. Things that Jesus said, that He spoke before Pilate. I want to know. You know, this is the way my mind works as a student. I want the right answer. So what is the good confession? John 18.37, Pilate said to him, So you are a king. And Jesus answered literally saying, You say that I am a king. Jesus affirms that statement. He goes on and says, For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world. Listen, get this. The good confession of Christ Jesus comes in part, in part, from the blurted confession of Pontius Pilate. What are you saying? I'm saying that Jesus got Pilate to confess who he was. You are a king. You said it. You said it, Pilate. Jesus didn't bait Pilate. He didn't lure him. The words just came pouring out of Pilate's mouth. But that's how it works. Please understand this. Jesus doesn't have to confess Jesus. He knows who he is. The real question is, do you? Do we? Do I know who He is? All four Gospels record Jesus saying to Pilate, Suleges, you said it. You said it. Pilate, you said it. So that's the good confession of Christ that He is a King and He got Pilate to say it partially. But listen to Paul one more time. 1 Timothy 6.13 I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Christ Jesus testified the good confession. We've already established that confession can be both what you say and what you do. But Jesus testified of this. Meaning what? The word testified is martyreo. It's where we get martyr. And it is an actionable thing. Martyreo means to bear witness. What are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that Jesus didn't just speak the confession. He lived it before Pilate. He bore witness. Just as He bore the scourging 
as He bore the crown of thorns, as He bore the cross on His shoulders through the streets of Jerusalem, as He bore your sins and mine on the cross, Jesus confessed the good confession. Jesus testified to the truth by walking it out in front of Pilate. It wasn't just what He said. It was what He did because the good confession is a good profession. And as I said earlier, your profession is what you say, but your profession is also what you do. Profession of faith, profession of life. It is both. It must be both. And so Paul says to Timothy, Ah, Timothy, keep confessing. Keep professing until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the substance of your grit and your perseverance and your determination. Not just that you speak religious words, but you speak the words and you live them just as Jesus did. That is the good confession. And it's never the good question. It's not getting all your questions satisfactorily answered by God. You will find yourself spinning out if all you do is throw out questions. Question after question after question to divert the real issue, which is this, who do you say that I am? Jesus says. That is the good confession. What you speak and how you live related to Jesus. Herod questioned Jesus at length and got nothing. Pilate, actually Pilate, did you know this? He asked the right question, but he asked it too late. The right question? After the Jewish instigators called for the release of Barabbas, Pilate said, Matthew 27.22, mark this, note this, Matthew 27.22, we all ought to know this verse. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? That's the question. That's the right question. They shouted out, crucify Him! Pilate said, what do I do with Jesus? That's always the right question. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Of all the massively big, important events taking place in our world, the question is not, what shall we do with health care? What shall we do with all these hurricanes? What shall we do with North Korea? What shall we do with Iran or or ISIS or, or Syria? The question is not, what shall we do with guns or bump stocks? My friends, the foremost question, the only question that matters for all eternity is what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? What are you doing with Jesus? What are you doing with Jesus? Christians, listen to me. You are living a life that is doing something with Jesus. What are you doing? What does your life say? How is your life confessing Christ? It's not just words. It's not religion. It is not showing up here and cleansing the conscience so that you can go out and start all over again and come in next week to have to re-cleanse the conscience. That will never work. It will wear you out and wipe you down. You cannot do enough penance to to completely clean the conscience. No, the good confession is the confession of Jesus Christ because it is good for eternal life. Open confession is not just good for the soul. The good confession is good for life eternal. 
Lord Jesus, You made that good confession. You spoke the words of eternal life and You lived it out. You testified in the beatings. You testified taking the nails. You testified being lifted up on the cross and drawing us. Even this morning, You're still drawing us, Lord. You testified by allowing every drop of Your blood to pour out of Your body. You testified, Lord. May we follow the blood-stained footsteps of Your example. May we, Father, as followers of Jesus, live the good confession. And Father, this morning, I pray that if there is anyone among us who has not made the confession of Jesus, that they would not harden the heart, but today would be the day. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters, if anyone is here, (coughs) Lord, having played the confession game, just getting some stuff off of our shoulders, a little bit more off of our chest this week, only to have more next week. Father, I pray that You will draw out of us today the confession of Jesus, which is a lifestyle. Take our hearts, Lord that like Timothy and like Jesus before Him, we might live the good confession. In Jesus' name, Amen. Have you made that confession? Have you ever in your life made the good confession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If you haven't, don't wait. I invite you to come this morning to pray any one of the four tables will have someone standing there waiting to pray with you come and confess Jesus receive salvation accept his lordship let it be today he will change your life and if you're a follower of Jesus and your life has not been changed maybe you just need to come and confess him as lord once again whatever need you have don't wait Come and confess. Let's stand together and worship Him.